Payback Time is a podcast about building businesses, wealth, and financial freedom. We try to uncover the challenges our guests faced, the mistakes they made, and the steps they took to achieve their goals. The overall objective is to provide you with a roadmap that leads to your own success. Sean Tepper is your host. Are you ready? It's payback time. Tracking terrorists on the dark web, former ballroom dancing champion, has a collection of over 400 couplings, has three degrees from MIT, and consulted with NBC on the platform known today as Hulu. Although he has a lot of great experience, he found there is one important skill most people fail to learn. That skill is leadership. In this episode, we walk through his background leading up to a business and a book that not only teaches people how to lead, but also teaches you how to network, negotiate, and communicate. He emphasizes the fact that the smallest changes can make the biggest impacts on your career, and he breaks down a few of those tips in this episode. Please welcome Mark Hirschberg. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to share some of my tips with your audience today. Well, you got a really diverse background, and I can't wait to hear your story. So if you would, why don't you go ahead and take it away and give us your career backstory. I think of myself as having two dual careers. I graduated MIT in the 90s during the dot-com era and began as a software developer. I realized I wanted to get into management. I wanted to lead teams and deal with those challenges. So while doing different startups and helping Fortune 500s play startup and during some consulting, I said, I have to develop all these other skills, leadership, communication, networking, negotiation, these skills that will help me be a leader. Right. It didn't teach me in school. So I started to develop it in myself realize that these skills aren't just for me and other executives. They're for everyone. So I began training up my team. And so I've had this first career where I've become a CTO and I've done a lot of different types of startup companies. But in parallel, after I started developing my team, MIT had gotten similar feedback. Companies said to MIT, we love your students, they're great, but we're looking for people who are leaders, who are good communicators, good teammates, and we can't find that not just among your students and alumni, but anywhere, because other schools don't teach it either. Mm -hmm. So we created a program 20-some years ago at MIT, referred to as the Career Success Accelerator, where we're teaching these skills. So I've been teaching that now for 20 years at MIT. I've taught similar things elsewhere, and of course, turned it into a book, and now I do speaking and book-related things on Sure. So I have my second parallel career teaching professional development skills in addition to my primary career as a CTO of tech companies. That's awesome. So real quick here, what's the name of the book? The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Got it. And I assume it's on Amazon? It's on Amazon. And I believe right when this podcast comes out, Amazon currently has a heavily discounted sale on it. So this is a great time to buy. Nice. All right. We'll promote it quick. So let's dive into your background in MIT a little bit, leading into the tech background. I'm really interested to learn um, what kind of businesses you're involved with. So graduated from MIT, before we jumped on the live recording, you said you have three degrees from MIT. What are those? I double majored in physics and electrical engineering slash computer science as an undergrad. Also minored in political science, just to round myself out a bit. And then my graduate work was in cryptography. That is the mathematics of secret codes. This is used by the NSA, CIA to encrypt things, to break things. But it's also used by you every day when you put your credit card in 
and say, oh, I don't have to worry. I know what to say. That's because of people in my field who have created protocols to keep your information safe. Cryptography. Interesting. Very interesting. So, so after you graduated, what did you, did you join a startup or you work for a larger business? What did you do? I spent a year at MIT on research staff. Okay. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And early in my own career, I didn't have a clear career plan. I was just floating around. So I spent a year at MIT okay. and I knew I didn't want to go the standard paths out of MIT. You could go to big tech back then. That was IBM, Microsoft. Wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. If you go to Wall Street, also not fit. Big consulting, that didn't feel right either. So I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I landed at a startup. This is now getting into the latter part of the 90s. I landed at a startup kind of because I just eliminated all the other possibilities. And thankfully, I, it was what I wanted. It turned out to be the right choice. And I had a really great manager and some great teammates who helped guide me and start teaching me some of the things I didn't learn in school. That's awesome. So this startup, tell us about what did it do? I know uh, right away as an investor, I think about the dot-com bubble. Um, and I want to see if you were impacted by that at all. But could you share the business model and the name of the business? Yes. It was a company called Painted Word, okay. which I think has long since been bought and bought again. And we were, a, we were data science before it was data science. We helped build software to help with OLAP systems. You think of OLAP as a giant hypercube. So for example, our retail clients would say, I want to figure out how many of these widgets were sold on Tuesdays during the first quarter in the Southwest. And you could drill down on the time frame, on the SKU, on the region. So giant hypercube, if you drill down, you can say, oh, well, this is how many of those widgets get sold and business could decide what it wants to do with that. So we weren't some flash in the pan, let's just get eyeballs. We were a real company, real revenue. In fact, I, I felt early on in those days, I kind of missed out. I missed out on the raise lots of money and have lots of free food and the cool chairs and everything. <laughs> I never had that experience. All my companies were legit functional revenue generating companies. Well, I, I think you made the right choice because there's a lot of people and even investors today get caught up with really flashy businesses that have really horrible balance sheets. Um, so it sounds like you had some stability there. That's great. Very true. And I've tended to work more on the enterprise side. So mm-hmm. building software for enterprises. Now, part of that, because I do cybersecurity, that's a lot, sold a lot more to the enterprise. But some of the other things I've done with data or with media, these are all businesses. They're not sexy. You probably right. haven't heard of them. You can't tell them to your friends and neighbors and sound cool. It's not like, oh, I invested in Uber. But these are usually the companies that have a clearer path to revenue. And I think generally bear business choices and some super exciting, flashy, we're going to change how all consumers do something. So Painted Word, how long were you there? Just under two and a half years. Okay. Was there an exit and then you moved on? There was an exit, but not of me. The co-founders start having all these meetings with the senior leadership team. And I knew something was going on because it wasn't just their once a week meeting. I didn't really know what. Something was happening. I should have paid more attention. Turned out the co-founders had a falling out. Mm. Falling out involving lawyers to just give you a sense of how bad it was. So the company split in two and my boss, the CTO, went to start a new company. He invited me to go with him. The other founders also said, hey, we know he's leaving. We're pretty sure I reached out to you and others, but we'd love for you to stay. 
And that's my first step. I have to make a choice. What is right for me in my career? And in doing so, I realized I had more than two choices. This was the 90s. There were lots of tech companies. So I had to figure out where did I want to go? What would be the right way to spend my next few years? And then which of these two companies or any of the other possibilities took me in that direction I wanted to go. So that's what got me started on my own career journey when I had the choice. And I wound up leaving Painted Word and going to a company first called iShake. iShake was, it was a couple kids who had dropped out of MIT. And we were consumer facing at first, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to build something super sexy and exciting. But we pivoted a few months later, went more to the enterprise and had a successful exit six months after that. Wow. Six months. Impressive. And this is after the dot-com crash. So the market crashed in March. Right. We got our product out in, we did a pivot basically in April, had our product ready in, I think it was roughly June, somewhere around Mm -hmm. there, and sold the company around October or November of that year. Very impressive. How big was the team at that point? We grew to just under 40 people, maybe about 45. So I, I assume there, there was there some kind of, um, I think, of a, like a rev share or pool? Like I'm thinking about, did you have a win, like an exit win? Stock options. There you go. Those options, the company that bought us uh, did it mostly for their equity. And unfortunately, their equity went down the tube because they just had some less than ideal strategic plans. Gotcha. Okay. But my, that first company had a positive exit, and I've had two other positive exits. And then staying on some other options that I'm hoping will be positive someday. Sure. Absolutely. Holding for the long term, you could say. So before we we're talking, you did mention you you did some uh, work tracking terrorists on the dark web. And knowing your background in MIT and computer skills, especially in data science, when did you get involved with um, this activity? Were you working with any agency? I think of like the CIA. I've worked at various cybersecurity companies throughout my career. Okay. Most companies we think of as defense. How do you build bigger walls? How do you secure your data better? How do we improve your password so it's not stolen as easily? Right. This company was, I'm going to say, a little more offensive in that we would go out and do intelligence gathering. Who are the adversaries? What are they trying to do? When and how? So we're not the people who stop them, but we're the people who get the information. It's the equivalent of like the CIA doesn't stop the folks, but the CIA says, we figure out there's this threat. And then the military says, now we have to go in and do something. So we were like that. We were a private company, but the intelligence we gathered were sold not only to corporate clients, but also I'll just say various government clients. Sure. That's awesome. I'm curious here because I like to lay things out on a timeline. How soon after um, I look at the exit of iShaped, how soon were you involved with this company? iShaped, we sold it at the end of 2000. And this company I just named, that one was, I joined in 2015. So there were a bunch of other things that went on in between. Ah, gotcha. Okay, so leading up to 2015, if you could break down maybe a business or two in there, I'd like to learn a little bit more. I did a few different things. Actually, after I left iShake, the first thing I did was became a consultant because my own mentors had said, look, you are getting very good technology, but you said you want to broaden your skill set. And if you just take pure technology roles, you're not going to be exposed to as much. If you're a consultant, you can pick and choose. So I actually spent about four years or so as a consultant. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think 
no, much more than that. Uh, as a consultant going through, my clients range from Harvard Business School, where I helped to create an online class. And around the same time, I helped to start the class at MIT, but also different companies. There's a lead gen marketplace here in New York City. There's some online advertising. There was a few different online advertising places back then. The more interesting uh, big one that people would recognize, I was brought into NBC to help them with a business unit that had launched but was struggling. That business unit then ultimately got spun out in a joint venture with Fox and got rebranded as Hulu. Mm-hmm. And so that's still in business. No stock options with that one because I consulted <laughs> to, uh, to NBC, sure. but certainly something that it's nice to know that work did grow and has impacted many people. Absolutely. Well, it impacts me because I'm a big Family Guy fan. <laughs> get my fix on Hulu. Um, all right. So, wow, you get a lot of really good experience here. I look at um, short stints at like tech businesses, and then the consulting gives you the opportunity to help a lot of different businesses as well. I look up uh, or look at that leading up to 2015, and then when did you start working on this? Because I want to pivot here to your um, your training, the book and what it talks about. When did you start working on that? The book itself, I wrote while flying on planes and stuck in hotel rooms in 2019. Okay. It didn't take me long to write the book, but I always say, because other authors, aspiring authors, how long did it take you to write it? I wrote it in about four months or so. But to be fair, I've been teaching this for 20 years. So the Mm -hmm. content was there. And I knew from teaching, when I say this to students or non-students who I work with, well, here are the next three questions that come up. So when I was writing, I knew what to include. So I could write it quickly because I had been working on this for 20 years. Yep. And I really appreciate the context of your background here, because this is the direction I really wanted to go is unpack this book a little bit. I'd like to, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the key takeaways from the book with the audience, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. And I think you've got some great content in here that I, I they'd be interested in. So so I kind of hand it over to you. What, what are some key takeaways that this book really focuses on? Some of the topics include networking, negotiating, leading, mm-hmm. team building, communicating with others. And we can, we can dive into, hey, here's a specific networking tip, but I want to set two concepts that I think will help your listeners. The first is that you don't have to be perfect at this. I opened my book with that famous parable of the two campers. You have two campers off in the woods and a bear wanders into the campsite. So one of the campers wakes up and hears a bear. He wakes up his friend and says, hey, we got to get out of here. His friend says, oh, okay. He starts putting on his shoes. First camper says, what are you doing? Even if you put on your shoes, you're still not going to outrun the bear. And the second camper says, yeah, but I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. And that's the thing about our businesses, about these skills. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the best out there. If you're just slightly better at negotiating, slightly better at communicating at any of these skills, you're going to win. You're going to beat out your competition there. So don't think, oh my God, I'm never going to be great at this. Don't worry about being great. Just get a little better. Second, I'm going to use negotiations as the easiest example with which to illustrate this. Imagine, for example, this is how I typically explain it to people who are employees, but this applies to any type of negotiation. Imagine you're an employee, you're 25 years old, you have a job offer for $60,000. Instead of just taking that job, you negotiate and you do a little bit better. So you get $61,000. 
this couple months negotiating back and forth before you take the job, 61,000. If you do nothing else, if you sit in that job for the next 40 years until you retire, you just got $1,000 more for 40 years. One five-minute negotiation and you earned $40,000. And when you think about that, you say, oh my God, why have they not learned to negotiate? Because you don't have to be a master negotiator to get that $1,000 more. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're saying, well, no one's going to sit in a job for 40 years. And you're right. right. You'll have other jobs, you'll have promotions. If you just learn to get a little bit better at negotiating, you can add tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings. As a business owner, imagine if you did this with each of your client contracts, with your supplier contracts, with vendors, with partners. Imagine if you got better at negotiating non-financial things, because often our negotiations are with coworkers or with partners or with others. It's not just spouses even. It's not just about money. And here's the secret. That ROI also applies if you get a little better at leading or at communicating or slightly better network. It's not going to be as direct. No one's going to say, here's $1,000 more for being better networked. But that better network is going to bring you better opportunities. So for all of these, if we just get a little bit better, you're going to get this massive compounding effect to generate a very large ROI throughout your career. And by the way, I'll say to business owners, because whenever I do this, they say, oh, but I can't have my employees learn to negotiate better because you just told me it's going to cost me money. You know what? If all your employees do 2 or 3% better at negotiating and you gave them all 2 or 3% raises, but consider that they're also 2 or 3% better when dealing with your customers, when dealing with your suppliers, when dealing with each other, your pie is going to get so much bigger, you will gladly pay them 2 to 3% more. Right. So these skills are going to help not just yourself, but everyone on your team. That's impressive. Yeah. And I see the value here to both the employee and the self-employed. Um, so I'm very intrigued by the book here. Um, to all the listeners, is there any quick tip you can kind of give at the service? And then, of course, we'll direct people to the book at the end of the episode. I'll throw out just three arbitrarily. And by the way, there's also a free app where you can download and just get all these tips directly. Nice. So three, just off the top of my head, think about networking like a relationship because networking is relationship building. It's not collecting business cards. I see too many people think, oh, I just got all these business cards. I always tell people adding someone on LinkedIn and saying this person is now your in your network. That's like saying someone who swiped right on you on Tinder is now your significant other. <laughs> yes. Oh, look, yeah, we swipe right. We're getting married. It's like, No, there's some interest, but now you have to build that relationship. And the same is true for a professional relationship. So think about relationship building and not simply saying, look, I have all these cards or connections. Second, when it comes to networking, think about diversity. I meet people who say, well, I'm in the field of agriculture. So I need to meet other people in agriculture. Why would I need to meet someone in marketing? Why would I need someone in some other area? But you never know. First, when you might need someone in that field, maybe you find now what you're doing is going direct consumers and you need some marketing advice, but you also never know who these people know. Your network is not just people you're connected to, but the people they're connected to. Right. Bringing in network diversity is a huge help. I don't know a lot of people in agriculture and people in agriculture probably don't know a lot of people in tech, but if I met some farmer, we got to build a relationship. If I need anything agriculture, this farmer might not know, but I'll bet he knows other people in the field and can refer me to someone. 
Likewise, I might not be the right tech person for his question. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of tech people. I know someone who can answer just about any tech question. So we want to build in diversity into our networks. Impressive. Now throw in yeah, go one ahead. more when it comes to negotiating. People think about negotiation as when we sit down at the table with each other. That's like thinking about a football player right as he walks onto the field. Now, we only watch the football player when he's on the field. But if you think about it, that football player for every hour on the field, he's spending many more hours in training, whether it's just raw strength building, whether it's running drills and scrimmage games, even watching videos of the team that he's going to be playing. There's a lot of preparation. In fact, more preparation than playtime. And that's true for our negotiations. Good negotiators prepare ahead of time. There's a whole bunch of ways you can prepare that breakdown. But spend some time preparing and think about what do you want, what might the other side want, and how can you go about convincing them? And you're going to get much better outcomes. That's great. Let's take a quick commercial break. Do you wish you would have bought some stocks earlier? Imagine buying Amazon for $125 in 2010. Today, Amazon is over $2,500. Imagine buying Facebook for $25 in 2013. Today, Facebook is over $200. And imagine buying Netflix for $60 in 2014. Today, Netflix is over $400. Do you feel like you find out about great stocks too late? What if you could find great stocks before they become mainstream news? And what if there's a software that found those stocks for you? With Ticker, you can find great stocks before what feels like the rest of the world finds out. Ticker was inspired by successful investors including Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and my mentor, Phil Town. If you want to know how they consistently beat the market, Ticker is your solution. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R.pro. Again, ticker.pro. You did mention earlier that the book has a section on leadership. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. This kind of relates to when we kicked off the podcast, a lot of the education you get at school, school doesn't teach you how to lead. So can you give us a little insight to the leadership training you provide in the book? The biggest takeaway is that most people think of leadership as a title. And unfortunately, many people in their careers don't start leading until they think I have the title. Okay, now I can lead. But they haven't had the practice. All of us can start to lead every day. And if you are a manager, if you are a business owner, encourage your team to lead. There are some people who are threatened by this. who think, well, I'm, I'm the guy in charge. If someone on my team has a better idea, you know, if he starts to look like a leader, it's going to take away from me. Not at all. First of all, you are the business owner. and There's no changing that. But really, you want everyone to take initiative. You want everyone to put forth ideas and be part of this. And the more they lead, the less there is for you to do. If you think about the president of the United States, okay, he's the leader. What does he have? He has a cabinet of people under him. And he says, you know, I don't have time to deal with every diplomatic issue. I have a secretary of state. I can't deal with all the details in education. I have a secretary of education. And this person might put forth an idea and say, Mr. President, I think we need to put forth this education initiative, or we need to think about our our foreign policy mm -hmm. this way for the Secretary of State, they're going to put forth ideas that the president might not have thought of. And he wants that because he doesn't have the time to deal with it all. Right. So you want to encourage your whole team to lead. 
it does not take away from your own leadership if other people step up and start to lead. There's not a fixed quantity of leadership and every right. time someone else does, you lose it. So encourage everyone on your team to lead. And it's not just encouragement, you might need to train them how and get them going. Right. You know, I see a lot of people that they confuse the title manager and leader. And I see this with a lot of people in corporate America is they move into a management role, but they are, uh, in many cases, not a leader. And I'd love to hear your words uh, on the differences between a manager and leader. There's lots of different ways people describe this. Mm -hmm. Some people talk about management is helping people go up the ladder. Leadership is figuring out on which wall to place the ladder. Leadership is big picture. Management's details and implementation. Lots of different definitions. The best definition I have heard, the one that I like, it defines leadership. No man has ever managed people into battle. Mm. And if you think of that, it doesn't say what it is, but you get it. Yes. Now, I contrast this with another great quote, which is that an army moves on its stomach. Because you can inspire people all you want, but of course, <laughs> if you can't get the logistics right, if you can't get in the right places and the fuel and the food and the supplies, doesn't matter how inspired they are, they're just not going to do it. So you, you do need both. And when I end my, I have a whole section on leadership and on management. I break them down and look at them separately. But at the end, I point out good leaders manage, good managers lead. Some people do a lot more of one than the other, but you should certainly understand both and develop both sets of skills. I love your perspective on both. That's that's great. I this is uh, this is a good trigger point for I think a lot of our listeners who are investors, especially using ticker. What we do just real quick here, ticker. We we not only look at the numbers in the business, but we we teach our investors to look past the numbers. You want to look at the type of business model. You want to look at the competition. Then you want to look at the management or the leadership. And understanding the difference between a leader and a manager is really critical because you can understand the the character, the integrity, what they're what they're all about. You know, they are they all about flashy objects and a third house in Hamptons, or are they actually about providing value to their customers and building this business based on those fundamentals. So I would add to that because I do investing myself, both some of the angel investing I do in tech startups. Mm -hmm. As well as as an employee, when I work for a company as an employee, not as a consultant, I'm taking equity right. and a significant piece of it. So I am investing, I'm giving up potential salary I could get elsewhere for equity. So I have to think like an investor. Yep. And what we say in the VC world, we don't invest in products, we invest in people. We know for early stage startups, it's going to pivot, it's going to change. And this has happened multiple companies I've been at. I can pretty much guarantee a company in the first two years will change its business model at least once, possibly more. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so if you just say, well, I really like this product. I like how you're doing it. The numbers look good. That's great. Fair enough, the numbers look bad. But you know that's all going to change. Will the people running the show understand how to do this? And so the things I look for, to your point, is that leadership. Can they grow the team? Do they have that drive to win? Because there's going to be a lot of setbacks. Do they set the right moral tone for the team? And I've walked away from individuals and companies where I see, you know, you're doing something that's just not quite ethical. And you might do it because you feel a little pressured and money's tight. Oh, I got to make payroll this month. But if you're willing to compromise, you're going to compromise in the future. You're going to hire other people willing to compromise. 
And it's going to create a toxic culture like what we've seen at Uber and other companies. I just walked right. Yeah. And I would say even today, you might think, well, Mark, you're you're talking startups. And of course, a startup that's 10 people that's not making money yet. Yeah, easy for them to pivot. I'm looking at investing in a stable business. They've been around for 30 years. It's different. It is somewhat different. First, you have revenue and it's stable and you have customers, but every business is changing. Think about whatever business you're looking at and think about that business. Maybe it wasn't around, but what would an equivalent of that business look like 30 or 40 years ago before the internet, before globalization, before all these things? How has that particular type of company changed and recognize that the pace of change is going to increase? Does the management team have the ability to identify and adapt to that change because that's going to be critically important for all investors. That's great advice. I love that. So before we jump into what we call the rapid fire round, it's a fun little round to really get to know you. Could you share with us in your entrepreneurial journey, was there a specific challenge you faced and how did you overcome it? There have been so many over the years, but I would say one of the biggest personal challenges was what I just said early on. I just looked at a company and said, well, that seems like a cool product, even if it was enterprise consumer. Okay, I like the product. It kind of makes sense to me. I knew enough to do basic research. You look at the TAM, the total addressable market. One company, they're trying to sell certain haptic sensors, and they just had unrealistic numbers to how many consumers would actually buy something like that. So, okay, I could do some basics. Oh, yeah, these numbers make sense. But I didn't think through how do we actually execute and build on it? A lot of business models look good at steady state. So you think about an eBay or an Amazon. That model looks great when you have 100 million people on the platform or Facebook or whoever. But how does that business look when you have 1,000 people? 1,000 people on eBay, that could be a problem if they're not buying and selling the same things. Everyone shows up and says, well, there's nothing here for me, and they walk away. So the go-to-market, and this is true anytime you're rolling out a new product or scaling up, understanding that go-to-market and understanding the ability of companies to really think through that. And then, of course, adapt, because as we said, they're going to change. Early in my career, I just said, well, this business makes sense. The numbers add up. And I didn't always look beyond the numbers to the team or understand the execution to get to those numbers. Right. And I probably saw the early companies shouldn't have, shouldn't have joined them, but... I've gotten a lot smarter over the years. <laughs> that experience, I, I tell you what, that's to be in the business, not just looking at the business, because I see a lot of people, they'll analyze the business, but you have the advantage where you've been inside the business, running operations, being in the weeds, understanding how those negotiations occur. Um, that's a big deal. That's a lot of education you can't teach overnight. So good for you. All of us, I think we learn when we get burned early on. Yeah, that's right. You know, you learn through those experiences, but I, what I found is you, uh, it's like gold because it's information you can apply forward to whatever venture you are working on or investing in. Very true. And I have avoided a bunch of other companies mm. because I had this wisdom now and could yes. do that type of analysis. And definitely, I can think of quite a few companies I'm very glad I did not join. Absolutely. It kind of, I use the analogy of swim lane. You make it even more narrow and getting or finding businesses that align with that become more and more difficult. The rigor to get there is, uh, you know, the stakes are even higher. You know, Peter Drucker famously said, one of the hardest things to do in management is figuring out what to stop. And Warren Buffett, of course, 
keeps a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. Because he says, we need to keep it there for when the right opportunity comes along. And that can be really tough as an investor. I certainly know VCs because they have the clock ticking. Right? They have their limited partners, gave them money. Mm-hmm. Why, why haven't you invested yet? But making the wrong investment, whether it's putting in your hard-earned capital or whether it's investing your time, as I do as executives in companies, those are both limited resources. And right. so you have to be very careful and strategic with it. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, for a long time, I am not doing it. I've sat on the sidelines between consulting jobs when I want to go back to full-time work. said, you know what, I'm just not seeing anything. I'm not taking on more consulting right now, but I'm going to wait. And that's usually the right choice because when I find the right thing, the odds of success and the outcomes are much higher, as is true for your financial investments. Better ROI, lower risk when you've waited. I know it can be hard to say for six months, I'm an investor and I haven't invested. This feels like I'm not doing anything, but that's okay. Patience. I know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have taught us through the years, be patient. You wait for the perfect timing. That's when it pays off. Very true. All right. Let's dive into the rapid fire round. So this is the part of the episode where we get to find out who Mark really is. And what I'm going to do is ask a series of questions here. If you could try to answer each one in 15 seconds or less. So if you're ready, go ahead. I'm ready. All right. What is your favorite podcast? It would be The Struggle is Real with Justin Peters. He does a fantastic amount of research on his guests. I'm going to write that down. The Struggle is Real? The Struggle is Real with Justin Peters. There's another called The Struggle is Real that doesn't have his name, but the one with Justin Peters. It, it is such a well-known phrase. That's why I had to get it right, but I made the note on Justin Peters. So good. Thank you for that. All right. Next question here. What is the recent book you read and would recommend? I just read Your Brain at Work by, I forget the author, but fantastic book that really helps you understand how your brain works when you get those emotional triggers and how to reset and readjust your thinking so you can think more rationally and less emotionally. Nice. Certainly true and useful for investors who can sometimes get caught up in some of our investments. I tell you what, yeah, cutting through the clutter, especially the noise of emotions that you you hear on the news and social media, it can be very distracting. So this sounds like an excellent recommendation. Next question, what is your favorite movie? The Longest Day. All right. World War II film from the 50s. And I think it's just because I grew up, my dad would watch it. They'd always show it on June 6th. Sure, and sure. my dad would watch and I would watch with him. And so it became my favorite movie. I have to admit, I have not seen it, but I, I have heard this is a classic. So this is immediately moving up the, the list in IMDb, you can say. <laughs> All right, next question here. What is your favorite food? Pizza. Easy. Hands down, New York style pizza. Chicago pizza is good too. As you know, I grew up outside Chicago and I love deep dish, but slice of New York City pizza. There you go. How many hours do you work per week? That varies a lot, especially as a consultant. And because some of my time is spent doing my own book promotion and speaking and other things, it can range these days anywhere from as few as 30 to as many as 60. Got it. Okay. Next question here. How many hours do you sleep each night? I try for about seven to eight hours of sleep each night. I'm lucky to have control over my schedule so I can get pretty good sleep. That's healthy. Nice. And what is your workout regimen? These days, my gym has not only shut down due to COVID, they closed down completely. So I'm just at home using resistance bands 
I have a small New York City apartment. I don't have room for a lot of equipment. It's resistance bands, yoga, and going for walks. There you go. Yoga, walking. A lot of our guests are into walking. Yeah. You can throw on a podcast and just go. Yeah. Well, that that's great. I've been listening to so many. Just turn them on double speed and really there you go. go through podcasts. Nice. All right. And last question here. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? I would go back to myself probably around age five or six and encourage myself. I was the classic nerd. If you watch The Big Bang Theory, I fit right in. I actually tell, told Bill Purdy, I said, I swear you had cameras watching me in college. But I would go back to myself at that age and say, look, it's great to do all this and focus on STEM and science and math that you love. But the people skills also matter and don't ignore them. And they're going to help bring you a lot more success. That's awesome. Well, good for you. We'll turn it over to you. Where can the audience reach you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book. You can also, if you hit the buy button, you can see where to go. We mentioned Amazon. Local bookstores carry it as well. There are eBooks on Amazon and elsewhere. So wherever you prefer to get them. You can go to the app page, and then it can take you to the Android and iPhone stores where you can download the Career Toolkit app, which is completely free. As long as you open it once a month so we know you're active, it's going to send you a notification at a time you select each day with one of the tips from the book. Because I know when you read a book like this, you go, oh, that's great. And then you forget it all. Yep. If you got some tips on a podcast, you're going to forget them by next week. But if you just get a notification each day reminding you, it's going to help you retain that and apply it better. So it's a completely free app. Whether or not you buy the book, you're welcome to download the Career Toolkit app. Then there's also a resources page. And on the resources page, I list a number of other books. I need to add the one that I mentioned earlier, by a number of other books, some I've referenced in my book, some others that helped me on my career journey. I link to a number of free resources online. There's also some downloads to help you with your hiring, to help you develop these skills in your team. They're all completely free, no cost, and you can get them on the resources page. So all of this is available on my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Oh, and of course, you can contact me there or follow me on any of the social media channels. That's great, Mark. We'll really appreciate your time. Again, you've got a, a lot of great experience and I can't wait to take this episode live. So thanks again. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, we'll see ya. Hey, I just want to say thanks for checking out this podcast. I know your time is valuable and there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to. So thanks for taking the time to listen to my guest story. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, could you head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review? That would be much appreciated. Thank you. And last but not least, on this podcast, uh, some episodes we do talk about stocks. And please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So if you did hear any buy or sell recommendations, please don't make those decisions based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks a lot. See ya.